John chapter 6 and verse 27. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. For him hath God the Father sealed. as we had occasion to mention last Sabbath, <coughs> the word seal <coughs> in the scriptures used with a variety of um, distinct but related meanings. Uh, we read of um, the church being sealed isn't to the Ephesians in the first chapter we read that after that they believed they were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise we read of various seals in the Old and in the New Testament but here the precise meaning would seem to be that God the Father set the mark of his approval on his son. When Christ says that he was sealed by God the Father, he thereby produces his credentials. This was to inform and to confirm those who heard him that he was no imposter, that he was no pretender, that he was what he confessed or professed to be. There is an indirect reference, at least here, to the humiliation of Christ. We might well ask the question, why was a seal necessary? Why was it necessary that God's heart should seal himself? Well, the necessity arises from his condition and state of humiliation. There was the possibility that he would not be recognized, and that possibility belonged to Christ's humiliation. There is no possibility in heaven that Christ should not be recognized 
خربانتیه در this glory fills with celestial light the realms of bliss there is no need for the sun to shine in it for the glory of God has lightened it and the last is the last thereof but in his humiliation there was not only the possibility of his being unrecognized the possibility of his being taken for being one altogether like the rest of mankind but it was impossible that he should be recognized apart from the sea of the past there is a further reference and this is at least indirectly connected with the humiliation of Christ that God is the supreme and the ultimate judge of all Christ in his humiliation according to the terms of the covenant of, of redemption was dependent upon the father's testimony concerning it did not matter what others thought of him it did not even matter the witness that what he did what he performed the witness it bore to him if we separate this from the testimony of the father everything becomes dark for we must always remember there are false miracles as well as true ones <coughs> the Pharisees were not wrong when they thought that Beelzebub could perform miracles they were not wrong they were of course entirely wrong in thinking and in saying that, was, that it was through Beelzebub that Christ performed his miracles but they were not wrong in thinking that the chief of the devils could perform miracles we have that in various parts of scripture but especially in the book of the revelation we read of the false prophet the false one we read of him making fire to come down from heaven causing fire to come down from heaven and that was not as a mere display of unusual power what does it mean by fire coming down from heaven well the fire coming down from heaven is as we have occasion to see and more, more than once 
Ich befreie noch die Beine über. It was the fire that came down from heaven, which showed the divine approval in accepting of man's sacrifice or man's gift. Now the false prophet can give many indications of divine approval. But they are all false, of course. Nevertheless, The fact of false miracles is writ large on the page of Scripture. So when Christ says that he is willing to be judged by his works, he does not merely mean the works in and of themselves. He draws attention to these works as the sign of the divine approval. In other words, as being part of this of the sealing of God's heart. Now the question and the discussion here is the means of life. The question basically is this How can man live? How can he live? That is to say, how can he live unto God? How can he have a Godward life? That is the question. Seek not or labor not for the meat that perishes, but for that which endureth unto everlasting life. It is the meat and the life. How is this possible? Now Christ says, it is the Son of Man who gives you this bread, that you may live. Live and not die. But he gives you this bread as the one healed by the fact. And it is implied in that that this is the reason, in part at least, why he came down from heaven. Why he appeared among men, why he humbled himself and was found in fashion as a man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He came that there might be life sustenance, that men, in other words, might live eternally, that they might have everlasting life. The meat that endureth unto life everlasting. Now the Son of Man gives this. But this is of such importance, of such moment, that there must be the highest certification, the highest proof 
the clearest evidence that it is he who gives life and the love. Though it is in order to meet that demand that we say him as God the Father sees. And this is the Father's device. This is the Father's method of giving life to men. He is the ultimate judge. It is he to whom we must look. Hence we find Christ himself saying like this. He who believeth, or he who receiveth me, and believeth on him who sent me, hath everlasting life. But the point we mentioned last Sabbath in the closing was this. How Christ becomes the bread of life to the individual soul. And we said that only as the seal of the Father is deserved can we be the bread of life to men. We might remind ourselves first then of this. If we are to live, if we are to possess everlasting life, we must possess it and have it in and through Christ. Because there's no other life. But then, if we are to possess this life, if we are to partake of life, that our soul may live everlasting, not merely be in existence, but live, live, have everlasting life. If we are to do it, if, if we are to partake of Christ in this way, we must know him as the one sealed by the body. He gives life because him hath God the Father sealed. Now the first and essential, although it does not belong primarily to the seal, as it is here used, the first essential in discerning, in recognizing the sealing of the heart, is this, that we should know that he is the equal of the heart. That we should know that he is the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person. Some commentators indeed place the seal in that very fact that he is the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person. That is true, but in view of the context, we do not take it that that is what the seal means here. 
Nevertheless, in order to be acquainted with the seal, the seal of the Father, we must know Christ as the greatness of the Father, the effulgence of his glory, and the express image of his person. For the Father would seal none of Sealing, among other things, is an act of wisdom. And the seal in the last analysis was to authenticate documents and writings. The seal was to show that what it was attached to was real, not spurious. True and not false. But then when I king attached this seal to a certain document, it meant that the king approved of what was in it. And the approval of course had to do with the contents of the document. The seal was but to show that the document carried the approval of the one who had attached the seal to it. Now, I'm worried of God the Father sealing the serpent. When we consider this as an act of wisdom, not exclusively as such, but certainly as showing forth the divine wisdom, we ask the question, who would God on whom would he set this sign of his approval? Truly, there is something here to consider in regard to the one who is sealed. Now it is in this connection we take it as we read of Christ being the elect of the Father. Chosen of God. He is chosen to be and to do something. But then, the fact that he is chosen compels us to think that he is chosen for that reason. <coughs> it is God who chooses. And then eventually chosen of God and precious. Precious. He is chosen because he is precious. He doesn't become precious by being chosen. See the priests under the old old economy? When there were these priests, they had to be honored because of their office. And so on down through the ages, certain offices demand certain honor. But God knows that those who fulfill the office of high are not worthy of honor. But 
But that is not the case with Christ. He is chosen to a high and exalted office. Chosen a high priest. Chosen prophet and king of the church. But don't you see? He honors the office. The office doesn't confer any honor upon him. It is he who exalts the office. When he is chosen of God, he is chosen because he is precious. Now see the difference between the election of Christ in that sense and the election of the church. Christ is chosen because he is precious. The church is not chosen because they're precious. That is intrinsically so. They are chosen to be made precious. They are chosen as lying in sin and iniquity. They are chosen as those who are in a state of wrath a state of the divine displeasure. The children of God, even as others. But it is this choosing or this election that's going to make them to be something precious. Because thou wast, thou wast precious in my sight thou hast received honor not precious in themselves potentially precious they are chosen in Christ they are chosen in Christ he is already precious they are chosen in him he is sealed he is set apart he carries the mark of the divine approval because he is worthy. He is fit. He is in himself intrinsically glorious. And he is so in his state of humiliation as well as in his state of exaltation. The express image and there was never a time when he wasn't rich. He was always the brightness of the Father's glory. Now to see this, to see it for ourselves, is the first step in his being unto us, the bread of life. The means that does not that which endures unto life everlasting. But then, there is not only his intrinsic excellence, the eternal dignity of his person. There is also the seal of God's approval in the work given him to do. And what is this work? Well, in view of um, the text and context, we might 
answer that question but his work is to give himself as the meat and the drink of people. That is what he goes on to explain after this. The bread that I give is my flesh. The drink that I give is my blood. He came to do this work to give himself that he might be the life of those who were dead. Mm-hmm. You remember this is how he describes it himself in, in one place says, The Son of Man did not come to be ministered unto. He didn't come that he might be served. He came to minister. He came to serve. He came to do our work. And to give his life a vatsa for men. He came to give his life a ransom for many. Now this is his work. And where is the seal of God's power? It is on him every step of the way. It is made known in exceptional circumstances in a way more clearly than it is made known in other circumstances. There is first of all in connection with this seal the voice from heaven. This is my son the beloved in whom I am well pleased. In whom I am well pleased. Now that testimony goes much further than to say that God was pleased with what the Son was doing. It certainly didn't include that. But if that is what were meant, we think the form of the testimony would, would be this. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. But it is in whom I am well pleased. It is not merely, and it is not primarily, that I am pleased with what he's doing. I have eternal, unchanging, unchangeable delight in himself. In himself. This is a testimony to the peculiar love of the Father to the Son. Not a son among sons, but the only God. Son of God, the only begotten, in whom I am. That's the divine I am. Comprehending 
within itself the past, the present and the future. It is the eternal unchanging testimony of the past. I am well pleased with you. The infinitude of the Father's delight rested, rests, and shall rest upon him, world with a rest. And he, as the only begotten Son, is capable, shall we say, capable of absorbing the infinite love of the Father. This person is sufficiently immense. He as the infinite one can receive the infinitude of the Father's delight. Furthermore, he can reciprocate gives back to the Father without measure that which the Father gives him without measure. The delight, the love <coughs> of the persons of the God is borne witness to here by the Father, the sealing of the Father. I am well pleased. I'm sure that in that comment. <coughs> or as uh, <coughs> the present word used for that. That's a challenge. <coughs> what is it? Well, surely. In the very nature of the testimony. It sets this question as if God had said, if I am well pleased in him, what about you? I am well pleased in him. What about you? And that is implied or can be legitimately inferred. From God's testimony, I am well pleased. You agree. And when shall one agree? When he hears in his inmost soul the testimony of the past. This was not a secret testimony. There were those who heard. Yes, you say, but there were those who didn't hear it. That's quite true. But there were those who heard it. And when did they hear it? Well, John at least heard that his baptism. But when this testimony was repeated on the Mount of Transfiguration, how does Peter describe this experience? This testimony we heard when we were with him on the holy mouth. That again invites a question. Have we been with him on the holy mouth? 
have we heard the testimony of God? In short, has it been transfigured before us? Here's to the natural mind as a root out of, out of dry ground. He has no form nor permanence. He has no attraction. But when he is transfigured, not of course that anything happens to him. No, but when he is transfigured, in our new estimation, there is inseparable from that transfiguration the voice of heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there is also the response, the response to the divine testimony. response of the heart is and always must be when he is transfigured when he is testified to by the heart there is the response of the heart thou art my beloved that is what the church says I am my beloved and my beloved is my there is the response. It may be very weak. It may be in accents that the soul, the soul itself may not be able to identify clearly. But in connection with the healing of the sun, as the bread of that that came down from heaven, there is always the response of the soul. My goodness. This is my son, the beloved. That's the way it is written. This is my son, the beloved. And the response is, this is my savior, the beloved. Him has God the Father seen. Not if it, not if it has that close seal. A seal was for the um, public inspection. And the seal was set on a document or, or whatever it was set on in order to be known and read. Now the seal of the Father on the Son is to be known and read. But there is another part which is openly displayed as the seal of the Father, <clears throat> which had not at this moment actually taken place. But in view of the Son giving his life for the world, his flesh, his blood, there is this part of the seal that he is declared to be the Son of God with power through the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And this also in the individual case, we might say, this is uh, the finishing touch 
superseding of power. This resurrection from the dead. He is declared to be the Son of God with power. But what's the inward testimony to the resurrection from the dead? Well, in knowing the Christ, in being enlightened to know and to commit ourselves to them. There is this fact that he is a living Christ. He is the resurrected one. And he lives in the power of an endless life. Death has no more dominion over him. As the bread of life, which the Father gives, the bread which is Christ and which Christ himself gives, this bread of life, this living bread, my Father giveth you the true bread, but he also refers to himself as the living bread that came down from heaven. And in order that he might be living bread, he died. But he also rose again from the dead the third day. He sitteth at the right hand of God the Father. And he is there as the bread of life. Him hath God the Father seen, declared him to be what he was. And it is he who gives, it is he who eats this bread of life. Now the peculiarity or the distinct the distinctive characteristic of this bread is if one eats it once he shall never die he cannot die and to eat it as we read further down here is to believe on his name to be satisfied with him and with him all to rest in him as a wisdom of righteousness our sanctification, our redemption. Thou art my God, I'll be exalted. Thou art my, that we say might be very feeble, but in the very nature of him, there is that, there is that personal appropriating of what God provided that belongs to the very nature of him. Although the comfortable persuasion of it belongs to the assurance of him, yet he who is satisfied with who rests in the sun as his core is all and in all is he who eats the flesh 
and drink the blood of the Son of Man, and that one shall live forever. He shall never die. Labor for the means that endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give. For him has God the Father. That's a fact. A fact of history. A fact in the divine purpose. A fact in the history of redemption. But it is also a fact in the history of the redeemed soul. It's a fact of experience. Him has God the Father. pointed out, has impressed upon the soul, has been the Father's promise, that life might be given to the dead, that the church might live, and in him, glorify God. This then is the work of one's life. This is what is said before us as the true labor or the laboring for that which is true. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? That's the anguish of the prophet as he views his own generation and as he views the word of mankind generally considered. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? And you labor for that which satisfies not. Oh, the folly of it. Yet the wickedness of it. Hearken diligently unto me, and be that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. In fatness. In the wealth of God's provision in his son. This is the fact. Let your soul delight itself in this, in what God has accomplished, in what God presents, in what God commands. Let your soul delight in this, and then we shall never die. Be satisfied. It satisfies the whole man. It is a feast of hard things, of hard things full of marrow, wines on the leaves, well refined, and all this is in committing the soul as it is unto Christ Jesus, knowing him as the one seed of the heart, and therefore bringing forth the response, he is able to keep that which I commit unto him. I guess that is lecture. Oh, Lord, bless us. Bless us with the spiritual knowledge which thou only canst give. Bless us with the witness of the Spirit through Christ. The witness that he bears when he glorifies Christ, he shall glorify me. 
he shall receive of mine and show it unto you. Oh, may this be true of May he be glorified in us. And we can never know what that means until thou wilt be pleased in mercy to work it in us. It is something we cannot conceive any any idea of unless and until thou wilt work it in us. Oh Lord, be merciful to us. Remember us, we beseech of thee according to the riches of thy grace. Take away